So we are in the midst of our summer series entitled The Creed, Considering the Core Doctrines of the Christian Faith. Uh, We're living in an age of biblical illiteracy, an age of doctrinal error, and it is critical that we understand what the Scriptures teach about God, about humanity, about sin, about Jesus, about salvation, about the Holy Spirit, about the church, about future events. And so that's what we're setting out this summer to accomplish, to look at those core doctrines of the faith. And in order to organize our thoughts, we are considering these doctrines through the lens of the Apostles' Creed. And so uh, let's read it together, confess with God's people down through the ages the heart of the Christian faith. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. So last week, we considered Jesus' identity. I believe in Jesus Christ. His only Son, the Father's only Son, our Lord. And we looked at those titles for Jesus and tried to understand what is being communicated about Jesus' identity. Uh, Today, we'll consider more of Jesus' nature. So this particular part of the creed that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. He was born of the Virgin Mary, and he suffered under Pontius Pilate. These statements not only tell us something about Jesus, they also reveal something about us. These statements describe the righteousness and sinlessness of Christ. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. It came up again in the last song we sang. The righteousness, the sinlessness of Christ is what makes his sacrifice meaningful, efficacious, effective. And these statements speak to the righteousness of Christ And in speaking of the righteousness of Christ, they speak to the sinfulness of humanity. So, while we're considering Christ here and his nature, we're also going to be considering the doctrine of sin. In big theological terms, it's called hamartiology. So, you have these major areas of theology, and this is the doctrine of sin. Again, reflected and highlighted through the righteousness of Christ. 
Uh, we've also been taking uh, opportunity to um, recite the catechisms. Again, some memorable ways to help us think about, concisely think about key truths. So uh, again, the New City Catechism. I'm going to look at several questions here that again have to do with the aspect of sin and our condition as sinful humans. So I'll pose the question. We'll, uh, we'll read the answer together to keep us on track this morning. Some of you read at different paces. I'll try to keep us together. Question 13. Can anyone keep the law of God perfectly? Since the fall, no mere human has been able to keep the law of God perfectly, but consistently breaks it in thought, word, and deed. Question 14. Did God create us unable to keep his law? No, but because of the disobedience of our first parents, Adam and Eve, all of creation is fallen. We are all born in sin and guilt, corrupt in our nature, and unable to keep God's law. Question 15. Since no one can keep the law, what is its purpose? That we may know the holy nature and will of God and the sinful nature and disobedience of our hearts and thus our need of a Savior. The law also teaches and exhorts us to live a life worthy of our Savior. And finally, question 16. What is sin? Sin is rejecting or ignoring God in the world he created, rebelling against him by living without reference to him, not being or doing what he requires in his law, resulting in our death and the disintegration of all creation. So two main aspects of Jesus' life that are considered here in this portion of the creed, right? Two ways in which Jesus' righteousness and sinlessness is proclaimed. The first has to do with the circumstances surrounding his birth. And the second has to do with the circumstances surrounding his death or his crucifixion. And so it might seem odd that we're going to talk about his birth and his death uh, all in one sermon but I believe that there is a thematic connection here between these two. Both of these depictions, both of these aspects of Jesus' life speak to his righteousness. So why is the circumstances of Jesus' birth so important? Or why are the circumstances of Jesus' birth so important? As we consider these circumstances around his birth, it's hard to miss the role of Mary. So at the outset, I want to just uh, talk a, a bit about this. She is mentioned in the Apostles' Creed, the Virgin Mary, uh, one of only two individuals mentioned in the Creed. I would suggest to you that the Roman Church uh, has had too high a view of Mary. They have venerated her given her particular devotion, borderline worship, 
They teach her perpetual virginity before, during, and after the birth of Jesus. They teach her immaculate conception that somehow she was conceived without original sin in order to be a holy vessel for Jesus' birth. Uh, They teach the assumption of Mary that she did not die but was taken body and soul into heaven. And they teach that she is a co-redemptrix, that she suffered with Jesus and cooperated with Jesus in the redemption of humanity. I would suggest to you this is not a biblical view of Mary. She's not a perpetual version. She and Joseph had other sons and daughters after she gave birth to Jesus. Uh, Mary's song is recorded in Luke chapter 1. So we have her own words And she clearly saw herself as a person in need of salvation. She said it as much. And she used the phrase, in that song, she used the phrase, He has, eight times, to speak of what God has done in providing redemption for humanity. So Mary's very clear on her place in God's redemptive plan. But I would also suggest to you that as a reaction, the Protestant church has had too low a view of Mary. We don't want to venerate her, so we ignore her. We don't want to be sending mixed messages or in any way communicating something that would be inappropriate, so we just don't talk about her. We need to say that Mary was a godly woman, a woman of strong faith, a woman who was given the distinct privilege of giving birth to Jesus, the Son of God. She endured the shame of an illegitimate pregnancy. She suffered in an unthinkable way as she watched her son suffer and be crucified. Truly, her heart was pierced, right? In a way we can hardly imagine. She remained faithful and loyal to the end. She was there at the cross even when most of the other disciples had fled. Truly, she is to be honored As she says in her song, all generations would call her blessed, and we ought to do that. The virgin birth is one of the hardest doctrines for us to comprehend. We live in a progressive, rational age and society, and these things seem to be remnants of a primitive and superstitious age. Babies are not born without sperm and egg, without a father and a mother. Why would we believe something so unscientific? Well, the short answer is that we believe it because the Scriptures teach it. Scriptures are our guide for faith and practice. They inform what we believe and how we live. The Apostles' Creed accurately reflects the clear teaching of God's Word on this matter. There is no ambiguity in the text of Scripture. Both Matthew and Luke highlight the nature of Jesus' birth. In the first chapter of his gospel account, Luke twice identifies Mary as a virgin. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Luke also captures here Mary's question to the angel who brought this announcement to her. Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? 
most literally, this is actually not the same word for virgin. It's a phrase that means since I have not known a man. Sexual euphemism here, right? She, she, she had not been sexually active. Luke also records here for us the, the angel's response to Mary. You know, how will this be? How is this going to take place? I don't understand how this is going to work, right? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. The child was not the son of Joseph or any other human father, but the Son of God. Matthew, of course, stresses the virgin birth as well in his gospel account. The birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together. Again, another sexual reference here. She was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. So it speaks to the fact that there was no human father, and it speaks to the fact that this conception was brought about by the Holy Spirit in a supernatural way. Matthew's gospel also records the words of the angel to Joseph. Uh, as, he cons- as he, Joseph, considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And then a further explanation. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So again, a reference, a fulfillment of prophecy out of Isaiah is also cited here. So again, the, 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 the testimony of Scripture in this aspect of the virgin birth is unquestionable. We also learn about the, the virgin birth through the genealogies of Matthew and Luke's Gospels. Uh, in a rather indirect way, both genealogies describe Jesus as a descendant of Abraham, a descendant of Judah, a descendant of King David. But from there, the genealogies are completely different. Matthew traces Jesus' line through David's son Solomon. Luke traces Jesus' line through David's son, Nathan. What is going on here, right? Does this mean that one of the gospel writers was in error? He got the the genealogy wrong? No. Matthew describes Jesus' genealogy through Joseph. Luke describes Jesus' genealogy through Mary. Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience. He describes Jesus' legal claim to the throne through Joseph. Luke is writing to a Gentile audience. He describes Jesus' biological claim to the throne through Mary. So we believe in the virgin birth because it is the clear teaching of Scripture. But we also understand that the virgin birth has to be necessary for the plan of redemption. It's important, not just because the scriptures say it happened, but because of what it involves and what it means for Jesus' role as the Savior of the world. So let's think a little bit about how this comes together. 
Adam, the first great human representative, brought sin and death into the world. We read about this in Romans 5. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, that's Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all have sinned. So Adam is the great human representative. In some sense, we were all present with Adam in the Garden of Eden. And as a result, we have inherited original sin, inherited guilt. The taint of sin has been passed down from Adam to all humanity. We've all inherited a sin nature. And of course, in addition to this, we've all sinned ourselves. We have ratified the sin nature that we received. So this is humanity's plight. We are tainted by sin, unable to have fellowship with a holy God, right? That's what happened when Adam and Eve were put out of the Garden of Eden and the door was locked, right? They couldn't get back in. The fellowship that they enjoyed with God on a daily basis and the cool of the day was a thing of the past. This is our condition. The kids all raised their hands to say they were sinners and we all have to raise our hands as well to say we have sinned against a holy God. Jesus, however, is the second Adam, the second great human representative. And he has brought righteousness and life into the world. Paul goes on here in Romans, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. So Paul here is again making this comparison between the first Adam and the second Adam, Jesus. And Adam, by his choices, by his act of rebellion against God, his act of disobedience, plunged the world into sin and death. So the second Adam, through his act of righteousness, uh, now brought about the possibility for righteousness and life. So we begin to see why the virgin birth was so critical. Jesus had to be fully human in order to be our human representative. But he had to be divine in order to be without sin. He didn't have a human father. He didn't inherit a sin nature. Scripture is clear, even there in Genesis 3, that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. It's an interesting reference, isn't it? Instead of just saying, Adam and Eve, one of your descendants will crush the head of the serpent, will make all things right again. Instead, attention is drawn to the woman. So the events of Jesus' birth, his nature as conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary is important. 
in terms of his ability to be the righteous, sinless sacrifice for our sin. Now again, there's a second aspect of what we're looking at today. We, the first part of the, uh, this section of the creed deals with the events surrounding Jesus' birth. The second section deals with the events surrounding Jesus' death, his crucifixion. So I ask the question here, how did Pilate make it into the creed? How did this scoundrel get his name recorded for all posterity? Right? Why is this important? The creed moves in an abrupt way from Jesus' conception and birth to the eve of his crucifixion. There is no mention of his growing up years or his teaching ministry or his miracles. But again, this is reflective of the scriptural account. When you consider the four Gospels, over 50% of the material is centered on Jesus' final week in Jerusalem. His death, burial, and resurrection are clearly the focal point. This is why he came. Jesus did not come to perform miracles or to heal diseases or to inspire people to live better lives. He came to die for the sins of the world, to be a substitute, to be the goat, to be the lamb offered for the sins of humanity. But even if we're going to focus on Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, why mention Pilate? Outside of the persons of the triune Godhead, the only other person mentioned is Mary, the mother of Jesus. No mention of Abraham or King David or Peter or Paul. How did Pilate make the cut? This, too, speaks to Jesus' sinlessness, his righteousness. It is significant that Jesus was involved in a formal trial and interrogation and examination He wasn't simply taken out to the back alley and roughed up by some hooligans. He wasn't simply lynched by an emotionally charged mob. Jesus was arrested, taken to the chief priest where he was interrogated. They sent Jesus then to Pilate, the Roman governor of Jerusalem. After questioning Jesus, Pilate declared him to be innocent. But it just so happened that Herod was in town. Herod was the ruler over Galilee, Jesus' hometown. And the crowds kept insisting that Jesus, this Jesus was a troublemaker, not only here in Jerusalem, but also in Galilee. And so Pilate said, oh, Galilee. Well, Herod's here. Uh, I'm going to send Jesus over to Herod and let Herod examine him. And Herod could find nothing wrong with Jesus, sent him back to Pilate where he was questioned again. In the midst of all of this, Pilate's wife came to Pilate and said, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Finally, Pilate declared, I have found in him no guilt deserving of death. But the crowds were insistent. A riot was about to break out. And in order to pacify the situation, Pilate turned Jesus over to be crucified. He knew that he was sending an innocent man to his death. And he washed his hands. Some some attempt to try to get this guilt washed away. 
The investigation was rigged. <laughs> it was a sham. Protocols were not followed. The religious leaders conducted an illegal secret trial in the middle of the night. They rushed the trial, which required, according to Jewish law, a two-day waiting period before the sentence of death could be pronounced. They coerced the witnesses. But even so, they were unable to build a case against Jesus. The only thing they could really substantiate was that he had claimed to be God. He, cl- he, he called God his Father. And this was the charge that they could get to stick. Blasphemy. <laughs> even though... It was true. Remember the context. Remember what is happening in Jerusalem at this time. It was Passover. It was one of the pilgrimage feasts where the Jewish people were required to travel to Jerusalem. This is why the crowds were gathered. Passover was where they would remember how God delivered them out of slavery in Egypt. They were to remember how each family had slaughtered a lamb and placed its blood on the doorposts so that God's judgment would pass over them. So every year, as they celebrated Passover, each family was to select a lamb to be sacrificed. The lambs were to be selected on the 10th day of the month, Nisan, and sacrificed on the 14th day of that month. They had to keep the lamb with them for four days before offering the sacrifice. Why? This was a time in which the lamb was to be inspected by the family to make sure it was a worthy sacrifice without spot or blemish. So Jesus is here in Jerusalem for the feast of Passover. Matter of fact, in the year that Jesus was crucified, the 10th of Nisan fell on a Sunday. Jesus entered into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday But it could also have been called Lamb Selection Day. This was the day when all the lambs were being brought into the city of Jerusalem for sacrifice. By the way, most of the Passover lambs were from Bethlehem. A little rural burg just to the south of Jerusalem. From Monday through Thursday of that week, Jesus was intensely inspected. Examined by the Jewish leaders, Pilate, Herod, Pilate again, publicly and formally declared to be innocent, a lamb without spot or blemish. Again, even the fact that he stood before Pontius Pilate speaks to his righteousness. As the lamb of God, Jesus was thoroughly inspected and declared to be a fitting sacrifice for the sins of the people. We are sinners deserving God's judgment. We've inherited a sin nature from Adam, and we have all ratified that sin nature through our own personal sin. We are totally depraved, which is not to say that we're as bad as we could be, but we are tainted by sin, every part of us, our mind, our will, our emotions, our bodies, are all impacted by sin. Nothing in us is good or pure. Our hearts are deceitful and corrupt. Our motives are mixed. Even when our actions are right, we 
We cannot please God or satisfy his righteous standard through our own human efforts. In our natural condition, we're dead in our trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2. Even our most noble deeds are like soiled garments, like dirty diapers before God. Isaiah 64. Martin Luther described it in his great work, The Bondage of the Will. In our natural state, he says, we are free to choose, but we always choose evil. Our chooser is broken. We're completely unable to help ourselves. We are up a creek without a paddle. But Jesus has come to do what we could not do. Conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, the sinless, righteous Savior. As we close here this morning, let me suggest to you some responses. As we think about the doctrine of Christ's righteousness and our sin. First, recognize your sin. A consideration of the righteousness of Christ should make you aware of your unrighteousness. I'm doing drywall work right now. I hate. I despise drywall work. I can hang the panels, but you get that knife in the mud and keep the sledgehammers away. It's going to get ugly. And it can look all right until you turn on the light. Right? And we, we might, you know, compare ourselves to other people or we can find various ways to garner some pride until we turn on the light. Until we actually encounter Jesus face to face in the holiness of God. Certainly as we consider this great doctrine, we ought to recognize our sin. John says in 1 John 1, if you say you have no sin, you deceive yourself. You're kidding yourself. And is it possible that maybe there's some here today who've never really come to the end of themselves? The older brother in the story of the, the, the prodigal, right? The younger son went off and did a lot of really notably, obviously, publicly bad stuff. And the older brother was able to kind of keep the upper hand to maintain a smug response. Hadn't really come to recognize his own need, his own brokenness. In addition to recognizing your own sin, help your children recognize their sin. I remember having to punish one of my kids when they were really young for something they had done repeatedly and in tears. They said, I just can't stop being bad. I just can't stop being bad. And they were right. It was a powerful gospel moment to say, yes, you you can't. But God can help you. God can do a work to change you, right? Repent and turn to Christ. So there's the the aspect of recognition of sin that's so important, but repentance. He's the only one who can remedy your dilemma. 
If you could save yourself, God wouldn't have needed to send his son into the world. And even in an ongoing way, for those who are followers of Christ, who've had their sins forgiven, who have a, a standing before God, a righteous standing because of the righteousness of Christ, confession and repentance are so important. It's so important to bring sin. Sin, sin flourishes in the dark. It's so important to bring sin out into the open. And that doesn't mean you just tell everybody, but there ought to be people you're telling. There ought to be people you're confessing, people that are encouraging you in your walk with Christ and repent and turn to Christ. Stop playing around with sin. Again, when a person turns to Christ, their sins are forgiven and the righteousness of Christ is imputed or credited to their account. So when a Christian sins, their standing before God is unchanged, but their fellowship with God is disrupted. Sin still has consequences. It has an effect. It is serious. It is destructive. There's a burst of euphoria associated with sin. Provides a brief diversion. But then there is deep regret and far-reaching consequences. It's a shiny lure, but it hides a horrible hook. Our Heavenly Father is not a permissive parent. He brings painful discipline into our lives. The culture has downplayed sin. Even some pockets of church culture have downplayed sin. Have you? Are there maybe some pockets of your life where you say, I, I've become desensitized. I, 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 I've failed to really look at sin as I ought to be looking at it. Are you responding appropriately to God's grace? He's freed you from the bondage of sin. How are you using the freedom that he's given you? That freedom has come at such high cost through the blood of Christ. We ought to be responding by turning from sin. Examine yourself to make sure you're in faith. Some have embraced what would be called cheap grace. They've asked God to forgive their sins so they don't have to go to hell when they die, but they've never really changed the orientation of their life. They've, they've tried to embrace Jesus as Savior, but not as Lord. A consistent pattern of disobedience should be cause for concern. Fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. Jesus' true followers are those who obey his commandments, according to Matthew 7, Jesus' words. The one who claims to know God but disobeys his commandments is a liar. He doesn't really know God. 2 John chapter 2. And Paul there in 2 Corinthians 13 uses that exact phrase. Writing to a church in Corinth that was marked by sin, he urges these members, can stop and consider whether you're really a follower of Jesus. 
What does your life indicate about your true allegiance? Finally, understand that the work of the second Adam is more powerful than the work of the first Adam. First Adam led humanity into sin and death, but the second Adam leads us to righteousness and life. Many of you know, don't need to be convinced that you're a sinner. Matter of fact, you're going to leave here really heavy with a heavy heart today. So we've been talking about sin. You're fully aware of your sin. You are defeated by your sin. But I tell you today that you don't need to be defined by your sin. Your past doesn't have to define your future. The work of the second Adam, the work of Christ, is more powerful than the work of the first Adam. We can experience victory, progressive sanctification. We have a new standing in Christ. We have new freedom not to sin. And so this is, this is good news. The scriptures, the law highlights our sin, but it never leaves us there. It always points us beyond our sin to the grace that has been provided through Christ. So don't leave feeling discouraged and defeated. Leave feeling really thankful that God has made a way for us to be forgiven of our sins.